always tell people, you don't want to hear what uh, I think or my best opinion. Uh, you want to hear what God has to say, and I want you to see that for yourself in his word. So it helps if we track along to understand what God says to us through his word. Luke 23, I want to begin reading in verse 26. This is the account of the Lord's crucifixion as recorded by Luke. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. There followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They cast lots to divide his garments. The people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I want to direct your attention this morning to the first part of the 34th verse where Jesus speaks these words from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You may be surprised to learn that many of the earliest manuscripts of our Bible omit those words. They're not found in the text. And this raises a question among scholars. 
The question is not so much whether or not Jesus actually said these words. The question is whether or not Luke actually included them in his original writing. I suggest to you that the answer, did Luke record these in his original writing, is a resounding yes. The reason I would say that is two. One, this statement is not found in the other Gospels, and therefore it seems logical that Luke would actually include this to fill out the picture of what took place on the cross. He had those other Gospel writers available to him. Therefore, he included it to demonstrate that this was a part of what Jesus said on the cross. But probably more convincing is the fact that the inclusion of this, these words of Jesus from the cross fits a major theme in Luke's gospel. More than any other gospel writer, Luke talks about forgiveness. He uses that word more than any other gospel writer. In fact, he often uses it in this phrase, forgiveness of sins. It's repeatedly mentioned by him because this is what he, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to communicate. And it really makes much sense because if you read Luke's gospel, you would note, if you read it carefully, that Luke focuses on the outcast and the downcast. Those that are outside of normal society look down upon and those that are particularly sinful in society. How do we know that? Well, for instance, Luke is the only one that records of all the gospel writers the story of the good Samaritan. Samaritans, according to Jewish people, were aberrant worshipers. They worshiped God, but in a different place and in a different way, and theirs was the great apostasy. And so they were considered as outcasts. And yet Luke records the story of Jesus taking a Samaritan and making him a hero in a story, even over a Levite and a priest. Only Luke does that. Luke records for us in the 17th chapter the story of the lepers, 10 of them. Men who were outcast by society because of their physical ailment of leprosy, which often in the scriptures is a picture of sin. And yet Luke records their healing, and one of them came back and thanked the Lord for that. But Luke elevates this outcast group that the Lord was concerned for them and their condition. Perhaps the greatest picture of this is the story that we read of in Luke 19. And that is the story of a wee little man. Do you remember that, young people? From Sunday school, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And only Luke tells us that story. Why? Zacchaeus was a tax collector, a traitor to his own people. You would mention the names of those in the same sentence as a prostitute because that's how the people viewed them, wicked, sinful people. And yet Luke says forgiveness was available for the wee little man. 
Forgiveness is a message that Luke focuses on, and therefore it's appropriate that he includes this statement of forgiveness from the lips of our Lord at Calvary. In fact, Luke is going to end his gospel, if you look over with me at the 24th chapter, with the fact that forgiveness is central to the message of the gospel. In Luke 24, in in his record of what we would call the Great Commission, Luke records these words of Jesus in verse 46. Go back to verse 45, Luke 24, 45, speaking of Jesus, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for what? The forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. And you can see this is Luke's theme in his gospel. Forgiveness is available to all the nations. Because Jesus has provided forgiveness. Therefore, when we read this statement in Luke 23, 34 of Jesus on the cross from his own lips saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It is right in keeping with Luke's point. And so this morning, I want to preach to you briefly as we prepare for the Lord's table on this topic, forgiveness from the cross. Forgiveness from the cross. Who is Jesus speaking of here? What kind of forgiveness was available or granted? Was this prayer answered? We'll examine this together today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for forgiveness, our greatest need. It is available because of what was done on the cross for us. So help us to remember these things and delight in them today, even as we, through physical elements, Partake of things that remind us of the body and the blood that was shed on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you're familiar with the name Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was a bombardier pilot during World War II. During a particular mission of engagement in the South Pacific, Louis' plane was shot down, and three crew members from that plane survived. They inflated the life raft that was located in the plane and sailed on the South Pacific Ocean for a number of days, fighting off starvation, shark attacks, a typhoon. Eventually, Zemperini was taken captive. He was found by the Japanese army and he became a POW. If life for him was enough on the it only became worse in the concentration camps held under the thumb of his enemies. During his time in that POW camp, Zamperini came across a notorious, a notoriously wicked Japanese soldier that seemed to have it out for him. Last name of the man was Watanabe. He was nicknamed the bird. It seemed like he would repeatedly seek out Zemperini in particular, remove his belt, begin to beat him mercilessly with it, nearly to death. 
Zamperini experienced great torture and cruelty at the hands of this man. Eventually, the war was over. Zamperini survived the POW camp, and he returned to the U.S. a war hero. But although he was released from the POW camp, Louis was still imprisoned. He began to have nightmares about his experience in those camps. He felt a great rage burn in his heart toward his former captors, so much so that he would say things like, I'm going back to Japan someday to find those that did this and kill them. He was spiraling downward, out of control. He gave his life to alcoholism to try to numb the pain. It became so bad in his nightmares and dreams at night that one night he woke to his wife screaming, and he realized it was because he was on top of her, choking her. In his dream, he thought that she was the bird. His life was out of control. Certainly, he was suffering from post-traumatic stress, but Louis himself would later signify that in his own heart, one of his greatest needs was this. He was dealing with bitterness and unforgiveness, and he would do anything to see justice at his own hands to those that had committed this atrocity toward him. We would almost look at a story like that and view Louis as somebody who really has a claim to be angry about what happened to him. And it's almost a human response that he would want to do that and lash out at his captors and persecutors. And then we open our Bibles to Luke chapter 23, and we read of what happened to Jesus on the cross and what his perpetrators had done to him. And we are astounded to read that Jesus hanging on the cross has a very, very different response. Out of his heart comes forgiveness. Pleading for forgiveness, a plea to God to forgive those that are committing this atrocious act of injustice against him. You see, Jesus on the cross requested forgiveness for those that were crucifying him because on that cross, Jesus was making their forgiveness possible through him. This morning, I want us to examine this simple prayer in light of Scripture. We're going to notice just three things about it this morning. The appeal. What is he asking for? We're going to note the argument. Why is he asking this? Finally, we'll note the answer. Was this prayer ever answered? Quickly this morning, I want us to note the appeal. The appeal is this. Father, forgive them in verse 34. What is Jesus requesting? Is he requesting a pardon for these people to be exonerated from the act that they are committing. Well, the term that's translated forgive here is translated elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, it's the exact same form of the word that's translated a different way that I think helps us understand what exactly Jesus is asking for. On the surface, we might look at it this way. Jesus wants carte blanche forgiveness for all of those involved in the crucifixion that day. Does that mean all of them got forgiveness. 
I think we need to understand the term. Look back with me at Luke chapter 13. Because the word that's translated forgive in Jesus' prayer, the exact same form of that word is found in Luke 13 in which Jesus is telling a parable. Verse 6. And Jesus told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Now verse 8, he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well, good, but if not, you can cut it down. You see the words, let it alone? That's the exact same form of the Greek word forgive in Luke 23 when Jesus prays this prayer. What that tells us is that this word in its original language can be used either to mean forgiveness, which it often does, but sometimes it means delay or wait. For instance, it's translated that way in Matthew 27 and verse 49. So when we read of Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, I think the best way to understand that is this. This isn't a prayer for divine pardon that they would just be removed from their guilt without anything done on their part, but it's actually a prayer for divine patience. Father, wait. Father, don't bring the final judgment now. Be patient. Wait. This is the nature of Jesus' appeal. That God would wait until something had happened before rendering the final verdict on these people that were crucifying him. We'll see what that event was in just a moment. But what I do want us to note is this. It's the attitude behind this appeal Put yourself as best you can in Jesus' place. You are being horribly sinned against. You've been betrayed by a friend. You've endured three cynical trials that really weren't meant to find what is true, but just to gain a verdict. You've been betrayed by a close friend that night. You've endured countless beatings and scourgings, and now you're hanging on a cross. And there is an element in which justice is not being served. And it may be even within your power to do something about it. And instead of call down the wrath of God upon people who are casting out the air, as it were, you're saying... God, be patient with them. Wait. Would that be your response? In fact, we're told that Jesus is actually modeling what he has preached. Go back to Luke chapter 6. Because Jesus had spoken of this very kind of thing. And he is modeling it from the cross. In Luke chapter 6, 
In verse 35, we read these words. Jesus said, love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be the sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. And here is the perfect son embodying this on the cross, merciful to those doing evil. Jesus would go on and say in verse 37 of Luke 6, Judge not, you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. He says, this is the heart of God. Mercy, forgiveness. And so Jesus sets for us an amazing example of how to handle life's difficulties when we are sinned against, treated unfairly and unjustly. In fact, you don't need to turn there, but we're told in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 21 to 23, that Jesus serves as our example. When he was reviled and mistreated, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered unjustly and was threatened, he didn't open his mouth and speak back. But it says that he committed himself to a righteous judge. He committed himself to the Father, and he prayed to that Father, Father, wait. Be patient with them. He knew the wrath of God would come. But he asked for mercy that their attitude at some point would change. Is that your attitude? Have you ever been consumed with bitterness and unforgiveness? You've been treated wrongly and justice should be served, and maybe the justice that you think should be served is opening your mouth and screaming at the top of your lungs because that's what they deserve. Maybe it's they deserve my fist in their jaw. That's what they deserve. And this is our human response that says, an eye for an eye. And Jesus says, mercy, wait, forgive. In the middle of his torment, he prays for those who are sinning against him, knowing that their ultimate forgiveness will be possible because of what he is doing, because of his sacrifice. Well, why is he requesting patience? Why this appeal, Father, wait? I want us to note the argument. He says, Father, forgive them. Here's the argument. What is it? Say it out loud with me. For they know not what they do. The argument is ignorance. Now, who does this apply to? Who is ignorant of what is taking place here? And of what are they ignorant? Well, thankfully, Luke doesn't leave us in the dark, but he tells us. He tells us not in this first volume of his work, but he tells us in the second volume, that's in the book of Acts. And so let's look at that. I want you to go to Acts chapter 3. 
Who are these ignorant people? And here we're going to find in the words of Peter, as he is preaching just 50 days after the crucifixion, this same crowd that was there and had witnessed these events and Jesus dying, in Acts chapter 3, Peter speaking in a public place at Solomon's portico, a wing of the temple. He has a crowd gathered there. And here's what he says took place just 50 days earlier. Acts chapter 3, verse 17. Peter says, and now, brothers. Stop right there. Who are Peter's brothers? He's speaking ethnically. Who are his brothers? Jewish people. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in what? Ignorance. As did also who? Your rulers. What was this ignorance? We've identified the who, the Jewish people, even their rulers. What was the nature of their ignorance? For that answer, let's go to Acts chapter 13. Because here we're going to find it recorded in the words of Paul as he is preaching in a place called Pisidia Antioch. He's there, and he is proclaiming the truth of the gospel to the people there. And just notice what he says about what took place in Jerusalem, Acts 13. Look with me at verse 26. Paul says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham... And those among whom who you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Now notice verse 27. For those who live where? In Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, that's Jesus, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they actually fulfilled them by condemning him. Paul says that what took place, those people that were residents of Jerusalem, when all of this crucifixion was taking place, they were ignorant of Jesus. It's not that they didn't know his name, Jesus. It's that at that point in the crucifixion, they weren't fully aware of his true identity as the Messiah, the Son of God. There was something yet to happen that would make that absolutely an incontrovertible truth. That's why you don't need to turn there. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 8, in Paul's speaking of the wisdom of the cross and how God put all this together, he said, had they known who Jesus was, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. There was some ignorance with regard to their full understanding of his person. And so when Jesus is praying for forgiveness or or waiting for divine wrath at the cross, he's praying for those ignorant of what is going on because there's something yet that would actually draw the curtain and make it absolutely unmistakable that he is the Messiah. What would that be? Look with me at the book of Romans in chapter 1. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts this in opening up his epistle to these believers in Rome. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son, 
who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his what? Resurrection from the dead. Paul says what may have been confused at the cross was made undeniable by Jesus' resurrection. He was declared the Son of God in power when he conquered sin and the grave. And three days later, it's at that point that all are without excuse. In fact, we're told in Acts chapter 17 when Paul is preaching on Mars Hill to those pagan people, he says that that the former times of your ignorance God has overlooked, but now he demands that everyone repent because he has set a day by which he will judge the world, and he has demonstrated that by raising him from the dead. He said it's now an incontrovertible truth that Jesus Christ is alive and he has demonstrated he is the true Messiah, the Son of God, and all will be held accountable for that. Jesus is praying for patience. His argument is for those who are ignorant because someday their ignorance will be put to silence by the empty grave. And so he says, Father, forgive them. They don't yet have that proof, but it's coming. Ignorance by human beings is not excusable. Our ignorance, their ignorance. They should have known better. They should have heard him more closely. They should have seen the things that he has done and drawn the right conclusion. That's why they needed forgiveness. Forgiveness, or ignorance rather, is not excusable, but it is forgivable. Christ in pity prayed for those who mercilessly crucified him on that day. Many of those who were in that crowd observing his crucifixion and by their silence giving consent just 50 days later would hear someone proclaim the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and they themselves would remember their shame I was in the crowd that day I consented to this that day And what a balm for their soul to know that Jesus that day prayed for them and said, Father, wait. Wait till they hear this message of the resurrection of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Was this prayer answered? Well, to me, it's inconceivable that any prayer of Jesus should go unanswered. He's the Son of God. He prays perfectly according to the will of God. His prayer is effectual, as it is right now for us. So how was this prayer answered? Well, the judgment of God upon those that would crucify His Son 
that judgment did come. Do you know how it came? In fact, Jesus refers to this in the passage in our text this morning. Go back to Luke 23. Jesus foretold of a judgment that was coming, a terrible judgment. He describes it in detail on his way to the cross. Luke chapter 23, verse 27, it says, There followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, you who live in Jerusalem, very important, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Why would they and their children be in a worse place than Jesus that they should be wept for? Verse 29, behold the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed. One of the, one of the amazing things of shame in the ancient world in this ancient culture was a woman who could not have children. And Jesus says, there's coming a time when that's a blessed condition. Why is that? Verse 30, they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us to the hills, cover us. He says, for if they do these things when the wood is green, he's referring to himself, life in himself. What will happen when it is dry? What will happen to the rest? What is Jesus talking about in these verses? What is he prophesying of? Well, this is regard to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and just... 40 years after this crucifixion event, Jerusalem would be sieged and would experience an amazing tragedy at the hands of the Romans as Emperor Titus came and destroyed the city. I believe, my friends, that is answer to God's wrath upon those people that willfully turn their back on his son. Remember Luke told this story about the vineyard? He said there was a man that owned a vineyard and he rented it out to these keepers of the vineyard. And he expected that, that they would keep the vineyard and it would bring fruit, but it didn't. So, so the man sent messengers to them. And when they heard the messengers. They didn't like what they heard, and they, they cast them out. They didn't listen to them, and some of them they killed. And finally, the owner of the vineyard said, they won't listen. I'll send them my son. They'll listen to my son. And when the heir came, it says that they knew he was the heir, and in anger they rose up and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. And Jesus gives that story to the religious leaders of the Jewish people. And he looks at them and he says, what do you think that owner of the vineyard will do? And they said, he will bring them to a miserable death. In other words, could he be any more angry? For those who would forsake 
Christ, even after his resurrection, the judgment fell in A.D. 70 on that city. And God's wrath was poured out. But there were people in that city prior to that time, we know it from Acts chapter 2, that they heard the preaching of the apostles, they heard the preaching of Peter, that this Jesus whom you crucified is alive and he's at the right hand of God and he did this for you to offer forgiveness for you. And we're told in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people heard it that day. They were convinced who he is and what he had done. We're told later throughout the book of Acts that the church multiplied in this message that people understood now what happened at the cross. It was the Messiah dying for me. And forgiveness they found at the cross. That prayer was answered. You see, Jesus on the cross requests forgiveness for those who sinned against him. And it's only at the cross that that forgiveness is possible for them. Well, what does that mean for you? You and I sit here today and we say, look, I wasn't there. This is 2,000 years ago. Beloved, my sin, your sin, put Jesus on that cross. It's almost like when I hear the jeers at the cross as the gospel writer and, and hymn writer says, I hear my voice in the crowd. My sin put him there. But beloved, there is forgiveness for your sin. And that forgiveness is at the cross. And if Jesus is asking for forgiveness to those that are committed in the act, it tells me no sin is unforgivable. There's more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. And God can forgive you of any sin. This is the heart of Jesus on the cross. Forgive them. I provide it in what I'm doing. This is encouragement for us. But there is also example in this. Is this our heart? Do we understand the full forgiveness that Jesus has offered for us? That we can extend that forgiveness to other people? Because I know how much I have been forgiven. My heart is full and therefore I can offer the same for those who would sin against me. Or would I choose the route of bitterness and unforgiveness and anger? that would eat at my soul. Jesus says, come to me. I'll give you the forgiveness you need and I'll fill your heart with the forgiveness you must extend. We should follow in his steps. Remember Louis Zimperini? Well, Zemperini found forgiveness in Jesus Christ at a meeting. 
The gospel is preached. Forgiveness is only found through Christ and what he'd done. And, and Zimperini realized that, and he responded to that, and he embraced Christ as his only hope of forgiveness, and it changed his life. In fact, Zimperini actually made that trip back to Japan. And he wanted to seek out his captors. Not for vengeance, but to tell them they too can find forgiveness in Christ. To offer to them the forgiveness that he had found through reconciliation with God through Christ. That's a changed man. And that's the power of the gospel of Christ. Do you know that forgiveness? Have you received that through faith in Christ? If so, you're welcome to this table today. We're going to gather around this table and observe these elements. And these elements are a visible, physical reminder of what Christ has done for us. And so as we take them to ourselves and even ingest them, we're saying, I've been forgiven in Christ. My only hope is what he has done for me. And if that's true of you today, you're welcome to this table. If not, I would encourage you not to partake. Don't be hypocritical. It's a serious business between you and the Lord. I'll invite the deacons to come.